Hey, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. So I was talking to a mentor of mine um, a number of months ago about some of the problems that I was having in church planting. So I I work with a lot of people who are starting churches all over uh, the country, and it's one of my favorite things to do. And he was pointing out that Jordan really was over-functioning in a lot of these coaching relationships. So basically what that means is they would have a problem, and then their problem would be my problem. And I would end the session, and I'd be thinking about their problem. I'd be trying to do too much. I'd be trying to fix their issues for them. And he realized this about me, and one of the things that he challenged me on was that Jordan, by jumping in too quickly to the process to save them from all of their problems, you're actually making them weaker leaders. And he challenged me to look at my own leadership. And Jordan, how did you grow? How have you learned to preach through a lot of bad sermons? How have you learned to lead through a lot of pain? And it's been that people have not rescued me from those situations that have fortified me, that have grown me. And then he told me a story about bald eagles, my favorite animal in the animal kingdom. Um, Bald eagle chicks, um, the hatching process is really strenuous. It takes about one to two days, and for one to two days, a baby chick will be inside of this really, really hard egg, working as feverishly as it can to peck its way out of the egg. And then he told me something that stuck with me. He said, if something happens to that egg and the shell is weakened for whatever reason, that baby chick is going to die. Because it is the process of those two days of pecking feverishly at the egg that is strengthening its neck muscles. And that if the mother wanted to do that baby a solid and just said, oh, I see little baby Jerome coming out right now. Let me help him out to get out the egg. What's going to happen is that baby would get out and it would die because it has not gone through this process that is meant to give it life later. Now, as he told me the story, uh, it really did sit with me very heavily. And I thought about this. For every eagle that soars 10, 15,000 feet in the air, it first had to go through a process. And in love, its mother does not hold it back from the process. In fact, the mother watches by, protecting it from predators and make sure nothing else happens to it, but she does not assist because she knows without this process taking the full extent of what it needs to take, this chick will never be able to survive on its own. Jesus teaches some scriptures, and for some people, it can be likened to this process of what an eagle has to go through to emerge from the shell. For the last number of weeks, we've been looking at this scripture, Luke 9, 23. And Jesus is inviting us all to our own process, our own difficult processes, that Jesus is protecting us from the enemy. He's protecting us from predators, but he will allow you to go through your own process because he knows in the difficulty, in the challenge, you are growing some muscles that would not um, otherwise exist. That something is happening inside of you that is giving you life. Luke 9, 23, it says this. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires or wants to follow after me, let him or her deny themselves. Take up his cross daily. Take up her cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his or her life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Jesus is using some really, really strong language here, y'all. 
He's talking about carrying our cross. And last week we touched on this a little bit, but this process of carrying your cross was an, an image that would have evoked some really, really strong um, emotional connection to the word. See, we wear crosses these days because they're nice and they're pretty, um, and they remind us of Jesus. And no shade to people who wear crosses. I have one on now. But what Jesus is basically inviting us to in this process is something that they would have assumed was like kind of off. The teaching wouldn't have made sense. It was like, why would you tell us to pick up this brutal instrument of death? Like, what, what does that even mean? And here's what it does mean. Jesus was telling his disciples, and Jesus is telling us now, we all have our own processes to go through in order to get to life on the other side. Your mother can't go through it for you. Your grandmother can't go through it for you. Your brother, your cousin, your wife, your friends, your coworkers, your pastor, your small group, your DNA group can't go through this process with you. Jesus, when he tells you to pick up your cross and to follow him, he is saying, there is a process for you that's going to be difficult. There's a process for you that is going to be painful and it's going to be slow. But you will do this not because I'm, I could force you to do it, but because there is life on the other side. Now, Jesus is obsessed with us having real life, and he doesn't want us to have uh, uh, anything less than, than life, real life with God. John 10 and 10, Jesus says this, a thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus lets us know his purpose. He says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And so paradoxically, Jesus is saying, I want you to have life. I want you to have real life. But there's a process to get that life. We all have our processes to go through, our processes of picking up our cross, taking our cross. Now, people would have understood this. The last act that a condemned criminal would do was carry their own cross to their place of eventual execution. This was a way that, one, the state humiliated people, this was a, and, and to show people that they are now so subject to the state that their last act of life will be to carry their own cross. Now, Jesus at, all, at no points means to humiliate us, but rather to liberate us. Jesus knows that there is something in you, there's something in me, there's life that God wants you to experience that will only happen through the process of picking up our cross. And because he loves us, he will not spare us the process. So the way I thought about discipleship for so many years, even as a, as a pastor teaching what it means to be a disciple, we've been in a series uh, trying to look at what does it mean to be a disciple, a true follower of Jesus, from Jesus' words. And one of my goals has been to deconstruct the American consumeristic version of Jesus, which basically just fits Jesus in where he can fit in. And says, this is a completely dif different and new paradigm altogether. So we know what we said. Let, let's just let Jesus tell us exactly what it is from his own two lips. And he tells us what it is. Now, the way I've understood discipleship over the years was more head knowledge. So I can become a better disciple if I learned more things. Learning is necessary. We do need to grow and to learn. Um, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I thought that by just attending worship services and being a warm seat and consistently being there was going to help me be a disciple. And make no mistake about it, it's phenomenal. It's necessary to point us back to Jesus, but that ain't enough. I thought that being in community and being known by other people and knowing other people would help me truly be a disciple. And Lord knows the New Testament is written assuming that you are deeply embedded in real community where people actually know your life. They know your story and you know them. 
People who have the permission to speak truly to you, to speak truth into your life, but that ain't enough. What Jesus is inviting us all to, what Jesus wants us to think about is this. All of us have a process that we need to go through to get to life on the other side. Now, here's a Christian paradigm of life that it goes from crucifixion to resurrection. And in Christianity, death is not the end, but rather it is a doorway to life. Jesus tells people when he's teaching, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. The pattern of his life for Jesus to be uh, raised in, in, in all eternity at the right hand of the Father, Jesus' will, I mean, Jesus' life and the mandate on his life was to go through death to resurrection. And Lord knows we all want resurrected life. We all want resurrected relationships, but nobody wants to go through crucifixion. And so there's so many different things in our life that feel like, like death. Surrender, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, feels like death. Jesus was a man of prayer. And one time his disciples said, Jesus, I see you praying so much. Jesus would oftentimes go away and pray for the whole night. And his disciples were like, yo, Jesus, teach us to pray. So he says, all right, you should pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. And he says these lines, your kingdom come, your will be done. One of the patterns of prayer that Christians have said daily over the centuries and millennia is this, that every single day we are coming to the recognition that it is God's kingdom, God's way of life that needs to be done. Even more serious, it is God's will in our lives, not our will to be done. The greatest problem with God's will for me is that I don't know what it is. Jesus asks for a yes before he explains what it is. You know, I'm going through this now with my oldest. Um, we've introduced the concept of chores, and um, he doesn't get the concept just yet. Um, so one of the things we do now is, like, put away the groceries. He doesn't pay for them. He doesn't have a job. He eats all the food and the snacks in the house. And then before he puts, <laughs> a couple months ago, he was like, how much am I going to get paid for doing this? And I was like, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. And uh, we had a good laugh at that, and he's since gotten the concept a whole lot more than that. But I think in a lot of ways, we're, we're like this. Like, Jesus, I know what you're asking me to do, but what are you going to give me if I do this? God is calling us to obedience without understanding. That is the nature of faith. And surrender just feels like death. To pray the prayer, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. Let's move it out a little further. Lord, I want your will in this relationship in my life, even if it means the relationship ends. But sometimes you like the relationship. You know, I think about when I was a, a Christian on campus in, in college, the small steps of following Jesus kind of just like felt like death. But I knew it was Jesus' invitation to me. I went to Morgan State, and if you've ever been to an HBCU, you know how big and popping the yard is. And at Morgan, there's this thing called the bridge, and the bridge is where everybody hangs out. If you do bad in school and your classes, people say, oh, that's because you were majoring in bridgeology. You were just hugging the bridge all day, staying out there too much. And when I first became a Christian, one of my friends invited me to this noonday prayer that they were doing. And I remember him saying, like, yo, J.O., I saw him in the cafeteria in the refact that morning. He said, Jordan, uh, come out at noon and, and come pray. And I remember, like, my heart beating out of my chest because I was so afraid to publicly identify as a Christian. I mean, now it's kind of silly to think about that. But I was like, I had done too much dirt. I had done way too much dirt. And people knew the dirt that I had done. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> 
How do you talk to people about Jesus when they know, when they did the dirt with you? <laughs> I remember walking to the bridge that day. I was so nervous. I was praying for rain, like, Lord, let it <laughs> open the floodgates, Lord. <laughs> Torrential rain, Lord, please. And standing there in the circle felt like death. And it was the first step that I had to take to publicly identify as a Christian. Now, where would we be right now if it wasn't for that, those small moments? God is inviting you to moments in your life that might feel like death, but there's life on the other side. You can't see it. That's the thing. Death is dark. It's the cessation of activity. Jesus was in the tomb for three days, meaning for three days, nothing happened. Jesus is asking you to trust that your obedience now, followed by a period of dormancy where nothing is happening, will lead to life later. And that's not just with surrendering to him. Um, that's with all the things in our life that feel like death. You know, I was talking to someone last, at the end of last service, and uh, they were talking to me about uh, traumatic things that have happened in their life. And um, uh, last service, I mentioned that one of the biggest invitations that the Lord might have for you is to, is to go backwards in your life before going forward. It might be talking to a counselor or a therapist. It might be talking to a, a spiritual director or a pastor about going back to painful moments of your life. Because check this out. The things that have happened to you in your life, they don't just go away, particularly the really painful things. Those things have formed you. They've shaped you. And for so many of us, it feels like death to approach these things. Now, I want to be really clear, particularly for people who have gone through real trauma in your life, uh, you need to go through those things with someone who's actually a trauma-informed therapist who can help you walk through that. Not everybody who is open to you talking can actually handle the weight of what you're sharing. And so, and, I, and, and I, actually, I don't know how difficult it is to share some of those things. I, don't, I have no idea, personally, how painful it would be to share that. But I do know this. What feels like death now will lead to life later. So many different things in our life. Um, you know, I, I used to think, I was talking to my therapist about this, I used to think that a more mature Jordan means that I would feel differently about a lot of situations. And I'm realizing that maturity does not mean feeling any different at all. It means still equally dreading the thing, but maturity is the knowledge and the ability to do the difficult thing. So a mature athlete might not feel like doing two-a-days, but they have the willingness and they have the aptitude and the ability and the desire to do the hard thing, to persevere through their feelings. And so Jesus is not calling you to feel like doing the thing that he's asking you to do. You're never going to feel like taking up your cross. Who wants to pick up your cross? Who wants to deny yourself? None of us do. He's calling us to a more mature faith, which follows him, irrespective of our feelings in the moment. You know, I think about so many relationships that I talk to people. My wife and I, we, we're entering into a season in, in our life, in our marriage, where we're doing a whole lot more in the arena of, of marriage. Quick commercial for our marriage refresh on <laughs> Saturday. Um, those spots are going to fill up very quickly, so if you're married or engaged, please register for that ASAP so that you have a spot. Um, but submission to one another feels like death. Your whole life you've been independent. And now you're going to tie your life to someone else. And here's the thing. Here's what the Bible calls every couple to do. Mutual submission, which means trading in your independence for the good of the unit. And so the question is not, what do I want to do? The question is, what is good for us? And that feels like death. 
because you're laying down your own ambition for the good of the unit. There's one scripture in Corinthians where Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So many people in relationships don't have a good relationship because you have chosen the permissible path over what is beneficial. What is beneficial? Mutual submission, that both of you trade in your independence, your will for the good of the unit. And when you have two people operating like that, you will have a thriving relationship and the seeds of a, of a thriving relationship. You know, suffering is another way that just feels like death. It feels like the death of our dreams oftentimes. And Jesus is letting us know that when we go through this process of taking up our cross, when we go through even suffering, it is not just for the sake of suffering and surviving. Suffering in the Christian worldview does not just leave you on the side, tattered and beat up and barely making it on the other side. No, it transforms you. That through the process of suffering, of facing the griefs that you have, that allows us to go through a process where we are actually changed on the other side. In a number of weeks, maybe three weeks, we're doing a sermon series on suffering, and we'll get to this a whole lot more when we get to the sermon series. Um, But to be in a situation of just going through prolonged difficulty, what happens is you come to the end of your own self-control. You come to the end of yourself in such a way that you start to let go of control, not because you want to, but because you realize you don't control anything anyway. One of the things I've seen in my own life, and we'll have plenty of time to share stories about what suffering does to you, and I want to be sympathetic and, and really, I, know, I don't know all of your stories, I don't know where you are right now, but in the worst moments of my life, I found my faith reduced to rubble, absolute rubble. And in my brain, I thought it was over. I was like, there's no way I come back from this. There's no way I come back saying that God is good. Zero percent chance. There's no way I even go to church ever again. God God betrayed me. God let my worst nightmare happen. And on the other side of that, there was this period of dormancy where nothing really was happening. By showing up, just showing up and putting my hand up and asking Jesus to carry me through suffering, what has emerged on the other side is a brand new life. It's a brand new faith it's a skyscraper compared to a one-story walk-up, what it, what, it, what, it, what it was before. And listen, what's going on in your life right now, I need you to believe two things and two things only if this is you right now in your life. You have to know that, number one, nothing happening in your life is meaningless. Nothing happening in your life is meaningless. Joseph, the story of Joseph is this beautiful story of this prolonged suffering in Joseph's life where he had a dream that he was going to be... Um, a man of significance and and so much importance, God let his life go through the gutter for years. He ended up in prison over and over and over again. He was almost killed. And at the end, he says this, what man meant for evil, God meant for my good. God was planning something. God was doing something. While Joseph was staying on in faith and still trusting God, he was getting stronger. So whatever's going on in your life is not meaningless, number one. Number two, you're not alone. Jesus, our risen king, the one who has suffered, our suffering savior, he is walking with you. And Jesus promises you, not that your road will be easy, but that he'll be with you. And on the other side, there will be a version of you that you will look at with great fondness and adoration. But we have to go through our own process first. 
In order to get to, to the life that God wants us to go through, we have to first go through our own processes. There's so many other things that feel like death in our life. Loving other people well, loving difficult people. If there are people in your life who are really difficult, it is a grace to you. They are your instructors. They are your life coach. They are, they are the ones depositing the fruit of the Spirit inside of your life right now. God is not removing them from your life on purpose because he's trying to do something in you. You want patience? God is going to put you around a whole bunch of people that it requires you to be patient. And the only way that's going to happen is by going through the process, not going around it or any shortcuts. Uh, as people are in DNA groups, um, confession is another really big one. It feels like death. It feels like death to truly confess, to, lay, to be vulnerable. But there is life on the other side. Let me save y'all all... Uh, a couple of weeks of waste. The worst groups, 100% of the time, stay at the surface. Nobody's vulnerable. Nobody's honest. Those groups are whack. Seriously. If that's what y'all do for eight weeks, then just don't even register. For, you're not going to want to register again for the spring. Everybody stays at the surface. Nobody's honest. Nobody's vulnerable. The groups that are amazing are groups where someone, some brave soul, is vulnerable. And it feels like death while it's happening but there's life on the other side. There's so much connection, there's so much vitality, there's so much growth that happens as a result. And so, Lord knows, um, we don't wanna go through this process of, of these many deaths, of the painful process that God wants us to go through to pick up our cross and follow him. Mainly because in life, feelings are our first guide. And in life, our feelings have taught us that pain is bad, uh, comfort is good. When I was a kid, um, we had a, a snow day, and this is back in the good old days um, when you had to wake up like at 5 o'clock in the morning and look at the ticker on the bottom of the screen <laughs> to see if you had a snow day. Bring the ticker back. Now kids get emails and text messages. <laughs> kids are soft, man. <laughs> the, uh, so you wake up like at 4 o'clock in the morning to check the ticker, and you find out you have no school, and I was outside having a good time throwing snowballs, came in for some hot cocoa. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, put the hot cocoa in the microwave, hit that plus 30 like 10 times. <laughs> Heat up this uh, hot cocoa for like five minutes, walked in, stirred it, and then took a big gulp. Right. Life lessons were learned that day. <laughs> Life lessons were learned. I couldn't feel my tongue for like two weeks uh, <laughs> after that. And check this out. All my life, obviously I, I dropped it and, you know, uh, all my life I've been guided by this pain principle, which means pain is bad and comfort is good. And as I've gotten older, although that's true still in many instances, right, in so many instances, that is very true. And we're in Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I want to pause and say something as well. Uh, some of you, love should never hurt. Love should be sacrificial. All these things we're talking about, Christian platitudes. Love should not mean violence. We work with an organization called WARM. Uh, it's called we All Really Matter. If anybody is, um, I would love to talk to you after about connecting with them, uh, about if you are in a domestic violence situation, about what that means to get out. It should never hurt. So for you, yes, that's a good guide. Pain is bad. It should not hurt. It should not be violent. That caveat aside, as we get older in life, we need to realize that not everything that is difficult for us is bad to us. The older you get, you'll realize 
that that equation is a little bit too simple to navigate a complex world. Some things can be bad and still be beneficial. There are a lot of poisons that are sweet and a lot of medicines that are bitter. And as you get older and mature, you start to realize which one is which. So the process that Jesus is inviting us to is really for adults only. He's saying, I know we've been kind of living by this principle our whole lives, but I'm inviting you to intentionally pick up your cross and go through the pain to face the pain because on the other side of that pain is its life. You know, I also think that we just don't really see this modeled in our American Christianity. For those of you who are from America, um, you know, I was talking to a church planter in Turkey and to hear his story and to hear, quite frankly, all of the persecution that he goes through on a daily basis. Like, they don't even have his last name. They just have, like, his first initial, his initials on websites because he has death threats. He gets real live death threats. He's in Turkey, majority Muslim nation. Uh, the government themselves are, like, actively persecuting him um, and doing so many wicked things to him. And for him, it's like normal. It's just, this is what happens. He reads this. He reads the scripture. He's like, oh, yeah, this is what's supposed to happen. Rejoice and be glad when, they, when you're persecuted for this is what they did to the prophets that went before you. So this is a normal thing in their life. But for Americans, we just haven't really been exposed outside of our Christian American bubble where we have a government that is meant to cater towards Christians, not persecute Christians. Now, I'm not saying we should invite persecution, but I am saying we just haven't had it modeled. And so it kind of makes us a little bit weaker. We're not able to actually endure hardship because we just don't really go through a lot of hardship. A lot of us think hardship is when people don't like you. Seriously, and some of you, that's your greatest fear, that somebody wouldn't like you. All over the world, their greatest fear is that they and their entire families would be murdered. It's not, the math is not mathing on those. It's not the same. And so Jesus is inviting us to this process. I'm going to say three things, and we're going to move forward and worship. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. A couple implications for us right now. Number one, you cannot simply wear this cross that Jesus is calling you to. We have to bear it. As much as I would love for you to think about the cross as Jesus' love for us, it is. Um, I wanted to remind you of God's sacrifice for us. The sacrifice that you didn't earn, I didn't earn, that should motivate us towards following him is true. I equally want you to think about the cross as Jesus' invitation to you. So as much as I want it to be about God's love, I equally want it to be about Jesus' invitation to you to carry your own cross. For those of you who are wearing a cross, I hope it means something different to you on your way out of here today. This is what Jesus did for me, and this is my commitment to him. So the type of death that Jesus was talking about, the cross, is a slow asphyxiation. So it's very different than like a guillotine or something that is as quick and immediate. Jesus is saying that the process of discipleship is slow. It's slow and laborious. Why is this so important? I meet so many discouraged Christians and discouraged people who just don't feel like their growth and progress is happening fast enough. To pick up your cross means that we are signing up for a very slow process of discipleship whereby we are changed over time. And so as you learn day by day, month by month, year by year to surrender more and more parts of your life to Jesus, that really is what discipleship is. It's learning, the slow process of learning to surrender all of your life to Jesus. Now, I don't even have to say the parts of your life right now that you just won't give them. And all of us have that. 
There are parts of our life that we were, that for those of you who are brand new, you're easy to give that up to Jesus. I can give up that. But there are parts of you that you're, you're still holding on to. The part of discipleship is the slow process of letting go of control of our lives, more and more control into the hands of Jesus. And this is Jesus' invitation to us. Not to beat you up or anything like that, because uh, Lord knows we all have those processes. For me, when I first became a Christian, it was very easy for me to let go of certain things. And it was very difficult for me to let go of other things like my image. Right? So we all go in this very slow process where Jesus is inviting us to lay down control of our lives to him. And that's just painful and it's slow. Number two, this cross is the way to life. We've talked about this. If you want to experience deep transformation by Jesus, we have to be willing to go through many deaths to get to resurrection. If you want to be like a generous person, seriously, if you want to be a generous person, God is going to put you in a situation where you have to give money, not because you have like just a crazy abundance, but it's going to be sacrificial. And that mini act of death, something that feels like death, being sacrificial in your giving is going to produce the fruit, the life of a generous person. If you want to be a servant like Jesus, it's going to require that you lay down your own self-control, you lay down your own desires, and you serve even when it feels inconvenient. That many death feels will lead towards real life. Number three, um, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in order to move forward. What I'm not talking about today is, a, is an exercise of willpower. Uh, if you try to rely on your own willpower to follow Jesus, to take up your cross, it's going to last you about 45 minutes. The gospel does not tell us that we need to just rely on ourselves, but rather we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in order to move forward. We need to keep our eyes fixed and to rely on Jesus, on his grace, to actually allow us to pick up our cross and to keep carrying it. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we, have, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the Hebrew writer tells us to keep your eyes on Jesus, and you do that through things like attending worship services, through uh, your DNA group and being an active participant, through the, through the daily acts of prayer and scripture reading, spending time with God in those ways. And you and I need to rely on keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, on his grace and his mercy for you, because absent that, you're not going to be willing to let go of control of your life. A woman named Elizabeth Elliot, she tells a story about a beggar and a king. As the story begins, she says, there was a beggar sitting at the side of the street with his hat outstretched, asking for money. Then he noticed that the king was coming down the street with his whole entourage, complete. This was his lucky day. How could the king refuse to give him something in front of crowds and crowds of people? So he stretched out his hat. But the king, instead of giving him something, asked him for something. The beggar was surprised and shocked and indignant. This king has everything. How dare he ask me for the little that I have? But wanting to be a loyal subject and being afraid, he looked into his hat and fished out three small grains of rice and gave them to the king who smiled and went on his way. At the end of the day, 
The beggar looked into his hat to see what was in there after a full day of begging. To his amazement, in there, in the place of those three grinds of rice that he gave to the king, were three grains of gold, three coins of gold. At that moment, the beggar realized what happened. When he gave the king those three grains of rice, the king had mysteriously replaced them with a greater gift. Considering this, and considering his own reluctance to give, the beggar thought to himself, oh, how I wish I had given him more. Here's what the gospel tells us. At the end of your life, at the end of every sacrifice, at the end of every place of faith you give to God, piece of faith in your life you give to God, you will not be reluctant that you gave it to him, but rather you'll be saying to yourself, I wish I would have given him more. I wish I would have given him more time to shape me. I wish I would have given him more sacrifice and surrender to actually lead me. I wish I would have given him more. And here's why. Jesus, our good and gracious king, has already given us his all on the cross. And to the extent that we can see Jesus, who endured whipping, mocking, beating, and the crucifixion for us, to the extent that we can, we can envision him and keep our eyes fixed on that, his love for us, to that extent, we will be willing to pick up our own cross and to follow him. I want to end with a, a quote from a theologian named Soren Kierkegaard talking about the love of God, the love of God in our life that always comes first. And he says this, you have loved us first, O God. Alas, we, we speak of your love in terms of history as if you have only loved us first and a single time. Rather, that with, without ceasing, you have loved us first many times, and every day, and our whole life through. When we wake up in the morning and turn our soul toward you, you are there first. You have loved us first. If I rise at dawn and at the same time turn my soul toward you in prayer, you are there ahead of me. You have loved me first. When I withdraw from the distractions of the day and turn my soul toward you, you are the first and thus forever. And yet, we, we always speak ungratefully as if you have loved us first only once. The gospel says that God has loved us first by coming to the earth in Christ, going to the cross, and our crucified and risen Jesus invites us to look at him and to, put every, to empty our pockets and to give him everything. By being so committed to him, that the closest parallel would be like a criminal going to the cross. And when we see him on the cross, it will give us the strength by God's Holy Spirit to go to the, to take our own process and to face our own processes for him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, you know how much we want to avoid the painful processes that you may be inviting us into. And Lord, uh, I pray that we would just be able to keep our eyes fixed on you the one that went through the cross, that went through Gethsemane, and went through everything for us, that you would give us strength by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to move forward in faith. Jesus, that thing on our mind right now that we're thinking about, that process, I pray that you would walk alongside of us, walk in us, to give us the courage to move forward in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.